0: He manifests His power in the believer being able to deny himself. Being able to, by faith, see the old self dead. The first thing we got to do is we got to try to understand what it is that this event that Jesus is speaking of that will come to pass and what is the time frame that he's speaking of. Again, he says, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So there's two phrases in there that I think are going to be key to help us to see. And the one phrase is taste death. The other is come with power. We'll talk about that as we go. So Jesus is specifying this period of time and this event that will happen and the time frame in which it'll happen. So the event that's going to happen, the uh, well, let's just start with the most popular, the most widespread understanding of the event that he's describing. The most common understanding of the event that Jesus is describing is the return of Jesus at the end of the age, the return of Christ. Whether you believe, as I believe, that that's one event, one returning, and then after that is the judgment and the eternal state, or whether you, as some would believe, that there's, there's two of those. There's a secret returning and then there's another returning later. Either way, it doesn't matter. That Jesus is referring to that return, to that, tip, that, that event in time. And so He's re- referring to His return and the period of time that He specifies is that it will happen before some who are standing here taste death. So Jesus seems to be attaching if that is what he's saying his return he seems to be attaching that to the period of time which would be the lifetime of some of those who are standing before him. Or as we could, we could put it another way, a generation. So before we move on, let's just notice that this is one of three instances in Jesus' life in which he spoke of a future event that is Possibly understood as his return. And he attached that return to the same span of time, which is a generation. Or in the Hebrew way of thought, 40 years. All right, so here's one of those instances in which he possibly is referring to his return at the end of the age, and he's connecting it to the time frame of a generation. The other two, one comes in Matthew chapter 10. In this instance we read uh, these words from verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death. The father is child. Children will, will rise against parents and have them put to death. He's describing some awful conditions here. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, and here it is, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. All right, so that's, a prediction, a prophecy that seems to be speaking of his return, and it also seems to be attaching it to the time frame of a generation. You will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The other instance comes in Matthew 24 in a section of Scripture known as the Olivet Discourse. There's a shortened version of this later on in Mark's Gospel that we'll get to, but the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 is notoriously, the most difficult passage in all four Gospels to understand. It is notoriously difficult to understand. And not for one minute am I going to stand before you and claim that I understand all of it. Some of the things that Jesus says in there are very, very difficult to understand. And so we obviously don't have time to unpack all of that. But the Olivet Discourse is another instance in which it starts by Jesus' disciples who are admiring the temple and they say to Jesus, look at this building. And Jesus says, verily, verily, I say unto you, not one of these stones will be left upon another. And then they answered by saying, well, tell us, Lord, when will these things happen? And specifically, they say, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus then goes on to describe basically an entire chapter of very difficult sayings and very scary sayings. And he ends all of this. Well, not he doesn't end it all, but verse 30, he says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And then verse 34, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Those are the three instances in which Jesus seems to be speaking of His bodily return And he seems to connect it together in the time frame of a generation. Now, those three passages make up probably the three most difficult passages in the Gospels to understand, particularly the Olivet Discourse. And in fact, the problem is clear to see, isn't it? If Jesus is speaking of the return of the Son of Man at the end of the age and he's connecting it together to a generation, particularly the generation that was standing before him as he said those words, then obviously the problem is Jesus hasn't returned yet, and there's been many, 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 many generations. And so this is a difficulty with which many people wrestle. In fact, you may be familiar with the probably the most famous atheist of all time, a man by the name of Bertrand Russell, who wrote a book that the title of the book is Why I'm Not a Christian. He started with the Olivet Discourse. That's what he started with to say this is where it all starts Understand, Jesus said, I'll be back in your lifetime, and He didn't. Okay? So, with that being said, we clearly don't have time to unpack the Olivet Discourse or Matthew chapter 10. Instead, we only have time to focus on the one right in front of us, which is Mark chapter 9, where Jesus says, To those who are standing here, he says, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. So the most popular understanding of that one is that Jesus is speaking of his bodily return at the end of the age. If that is what he's speaking of, then that has one support to it. and, And the support is that he just mentioned it. In verse 38 of chapter 8, he just mentioned his return, the judgment before the Father. So he just mentioned that time period. So it's not like Jesus sort of pulled it out of the air and the disciples are thinking, what? what? How do we get on that? How do we go from this to, to that? Jesus did just mention it. So that has in its favor that Jesus just just mentioned it. But obviously the greatest difficulty is the obvious one, that Well, if this is going to happen before some of those who were standing for Jesus tasted death, it didn't. And so what do we make of that? So for that reason, I don't think that Jesus is speaking of his return at the end of the age. The second most popular interpretation is that when Jesus speaks of some of those standing here, not tasting death until they see the Son of Man come or the kingdom of God come in power, What he's speaking of is the event that immediately follows, the transfiguration event. And so Jesus, we're being prepared for that with this statement here. Some standing before me aren't going to taste death until you see the kingdom of God come in power. And then right after that is going up the mountain and seeing Jesus transfigured. All three synoptic gospels include the transfiguration account and all three synoptic gospels begin with that. But then there's another problem. If Jesus is speaking of this coming of the kingdom of God in power and he's foretelling this event, the question that I want to ask is what's the point? What's the purpose? What's the purpose of prophesying an event that occurs in six days? What's the point of saying essentially to the disciples, you know, some of you aren't going to die in the next six days. To me, it just seems... That is not a consistent use of prophecy. That's not the way that prophecy is typically used to prophesy an event that is so close in in time to happening. Furthermore, did any of those standing before Jesus die in the next six days? I, I mean, possibly, but it just does not seem like a likely description. Lastly, Jesus says, some of you aren't going to taste death until you see the kingdom of God come in power. Now, the transfiguration event is not a, an event that I would describe as the kingdom of God coming in power. Glory? Yes. Absolutely. The transfiguration event is all about glory. It's all about the magnificence of the Son of God. But is it is it so much about power? All right, so... I don't think either of those understandings are really getting at what Jesus is saying. So what I want to offer is a minority view of what Jesus is saying. We're not afraid of minority views here, right? Because as Jesus says, we value the opinion of God more than the opinion of people. We are interested in what the scriptures are saying saying to us. We're interested in what the scriptures are teaching. So what I want to explain or what I want to show is, is what I feel like is the only satisfactory understanding of what Jesus is saying and how that fits the flow of Mark's thought perfectly, how it fits the context of what Jesus is saying perfectly. And so let's begin by thinking, first of all, of the word power. Jesus says some are standing here. You're not going to taste death until you see the kingdom of God come with power. So what does that word power say to us? It's the word dunamis. I think we probably have all heard an expositor of the word stand up and say something about the word dunamis and how it's the word that we get our word dynamite from. And it speaks of an explosive type of power, a power to change things. And all that is true. The word that Jesus uses here is the word dunamis. So what does the scripture, what does the New Testament mean when it speaks to us of power? Well, dunamis is one of of Luke's favorite words. He will use that word often. And he uses that word often in connection with Jesus, with the power, with the dunamis that the Spirit enabled him to have. The power of the Spirit working through Jesus, Luke will return over and over to the dunamis of the Spirit in Jesus. But Jesus isn't here speaking so much of what he can do or what he's here to do. Isn't the flow of Jesus' thought here, isn't what Jesus, what Jesus is talking about, isn't, isn't he speaking of his disciples? Isn't he saying this is the description of a disciple? This is a description of a follower of Christ. You deny self, take up cross, you follow me. You value the eternal soul. You, you, you do not in any way forfeit anything for your soul. Right Again and again, he's describing the disciple. And so we should assume that Jesus' description of the disciple continues into this verse. So his description of power, seeing the kingdom of God come with power. Now we ask ourselves, what what does the New Testament tell us when it speaks of power in relation to the disciple? Well, the New Testament scriptures begin by speaking of power as it relates to to the disciple in Acts chapter 1. Verses 6, 7, and 8. When the disciples are there and they're asking the risen Christ, they say uh, they, they say to Jesus, um, Lord, when w- is it this, this time that you'll restore the kingdom to Israel? Once again, they're looking to the end of the age. And he says to them, well, that's not for you to know. But instead, you will receive, here's the word, power. You will receive dunamis. You will receive dunamis when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the world. So Jesus says that there's this power that will come upon you. And the effect of that power is to make you effective witnesses in Judea, Samaria, all the world. So this power then comes upon them in the next chapter. Chapter two, the Pentecost event. As the spirit is given, the church is born. And this power that Jesus told the disciples to wait for is then given to them, and from that point on, you can trace it with the, you can trace the, the line of this all the way through Acts, from Acts chapter two all the way through chapter 28. The pattern is this: Once this power has come upon them, two or three things have changed, depending on how you want to divide them up. So two or three things have now happened to them. I'm going to call it three, but you can call it two if you want. So these three things happen to the disciples. Number one, they become equipped with boldness of speech and effectiveness of speech. We notice this from the very Pentecost event itself. When they say, we all hear them speaking in our own language of the great things that God has done. That continues through chapter 2. There's the healing of the lame man in chapter 3 when Peter stands up and says, you think that we did this? No. Instead, Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, (coughs) whom you denied, whom you put on the cross, He did this. And that pattern continues. We don't have time to trace it, but it continues consistently all the way through the end of the book of Acts. Those who are indwelt of the Spirit And those who are specifically, we're told, filled to the spirit, speak effectively and powerfully for Christ. Secondly, the power, the dunamis, is connected together with us in terms of the effectiveness of this message, this message that changes people, this message that brings salvation. We are familiar with Romans 1 and verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. There's that same theme again. Shame I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I don't deny it. I claim it. I own it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for here it is, the same word, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. A similar passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power, it is the dunamis of God. It is the power of God. So also this power that's given to the believer is the power of this message that saves. Now, to be clear, the message of the gospel itself doesn't save anyone. What saves sinners is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ given to them on their behalf. But the gospel is the message of what God has done that the lost sinner can hear and believe. And then the sacrifice that Christ made for us is then apportioned to us. That's how salvation comes to the sinner. But we understand what Paul's saying. This message of this, this is the power, this is the power of God that converts lost sinners. So there's a second aspect. This aspect, first of all, of bold and effective speech. Secondly, the content of the speech. This speech that we proclaim, the power of that speech is the power to save sinners. Thirdly, the New Testament speaks of the power of God given to the believer in the sense of peace and contentedness in the face of persecution and tribulation. The peace of God, the contentedness that surpasses understanding or explanation that exists in the heart of the believer in the face of persecution and tribulation. Look at 2 Corinthians 12. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that He sh- that it should leave me, this thorn in the flesh. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For here's the same word again. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so, so Paul goes on to say, for the sake of Christ, then I'm content. I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, I'm strong. We see the same sort of thing show up in Philippians 3. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him, and here it is again, and the power of His resurrection. And what does the power of His resurrection enable me to do? How is that manifested in my life? That I may share his sufferings and become like him in his death. We see the same thing in Philippians 4. That's the passage that we're all familiar with. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so what we see here is this threefold or twofold, this three-pronged power of God that comes upon the believer. And here's the paradox, because remember, this is a section of paradoxes. Here's the paradox. The first paradox was, of course, uh, gaining by losing. Uh, also the paradox of, of how you're going to pay for your soul. What are you going to get in exchange for your soul? Or uh, or the paradox that we, that we just saw, saving his life by losing it or profiting a man or the shame of the Son of Man before God. So now the final paradox is this. The final paradox is power through weakness. See the flow? See the consistent flow there? Power through weakness. This is the greatest paradox of all. And it's the paradox that Jesus is saying there are some who are standing here who will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God come in power. Now, paradoxically, we would think of power as, I don't, I don't know, outward strength, ability, Capacity to put others under our feet, to put others in subjugation. But instead, Jesus sees power as weakness. So what is Jesus saying? Remember, this is the most difficult of all commands. This is the command that the disciples hear this and they immediately think, Jesus, how will we do that? How? Will we deny self? How will we take up cross? How will we do those things? He then begins encouraging them. He warns them. You properly value soul. You understand. that There's nothing you can exchange for soul. He reminds them of the biblical principle of gaining by losing, of saving by losing. He warns them. There's a day of judgment coming. And if you deny me and my words here in this life, there will be a denial of you before my Father. All those things are encouragements and warnings and motivations. But none of those things will take them into obedience. The final thing that Jesus says to them is, my power will come to you. And my power will enable you to deny self. My power will enable you to take up your cross. My power will enable you to see by faith your old man dead on the cross and your new man coming out of the tomb with me. In essence, what Jesus is saying to them ultimately is, I will do this. For you can't do this. I will do this in your place. I will do this in your stead. That's why I think Jesus uses the phrase, taste death. Because tasting death speaks of an experience of physical death that's not permanent, that's not lasting, that's not eternal. And doesn't that describe the one who is in Christ? That there are some standing here. You might experience that thing called physical death but you won't experience eternal death. You won't experience lasting death. Instead, there is coming a great power. And that power is coming on the day that we refer to as Pentecost. When the Spirit is given to the church, the church is born and the church is indwelt with the Spirit that manifests His power in those paradoxical ways. He manifests His power in the believer Being able to deny himself. Being able to, by faith, see the old self dead. By faith, being able to understand that this life now cannot compare to the value of an eternal soul. And so this is the ultimate encouragement for them. This is the ultimate motivation as if to say, listen, your obedience in this, in this most difficult of matters is not optional. It is not by your choice, all right? Your regeneration happens to you without your cooperation. You're just like Lazarus. You're in the tomb dead and the Spirit of God calls to your soul and He awakens your soul. Come forth, you dead sinner. But once that happens, from that point on, it's not without your cooperation. So Jesus is saying this most difficult of commands, this will be the hardest thing you ever do. But ultimately, it'll be me doing it within you. Now, two final verses of encouragement. And those two final verses of encouragement come to us. First of all, look at Philippians 1 and verse 6. I'm certain that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Had God began a work And those disciples standing around Jesus at that moment, yes, He had begun a work. And Paul says emphatically, what God began in you, He will complete it. But then I think 2 Timothy 1 and verse 12, we read this earlier. It's worth reading again. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 12, but I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I believed and I'm convinced that He is able to guard until that day what He has entrusted to me. So the final thought. Are we resting in that? Are you today? Ask yourself this question. Are you today resting in that promise that what He began in you, He will bring to completion? But what He began in you is the hardest thing humanly imaginable. What He began in you is a supernatural work. The remaking of a dead sinner into a new creation for Christ? Are you trusting and are you resting? And are you furthermore by the power of the Spirit killing the sin in you which opposes at every step the denial of self and the taking of a cross?